Luke chapter 8, 40 through 56. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there was a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. And she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher any more. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed. But he charged them to tell no one what had happened. I love stories about Jesus because the more that we can know him, the more that we can understand him, the more that we can love him. And the things that you love and the people that you love change how your brain works. It has the power to actually shape your life. In fact, your belief system, to a large measure, comes from three things. Who you love, who loves you, and what do you love? Yes, we have a lot of pride that our belief system is all logic. We know that what we believe is true, but I'm going to tell you today 
to a large measure, it comes from who you love, who loves you, and what you love. So who you love. If you love Jesus, that's going to shape your mind. But growing up, who I loved was was not Jesus. Who do most kids love growing up? Sports figures. Those are going to have a powerful influence on what you believe is true. Who you love means who you believe has the good stuff. Who do you think really has it made? Who gets to call the shots? In my case, it was James Bond. doesn't have to be a real character. It can be a fictional character. But whoever you love, and you say, that guy, he gets the good stuff. I want to be like him. But who you love dramatically will affect the direction your brain and your life will go. What you want to believe is true about life. Who you love. Who loves you? Or who would you like to love you? What people group would you like to love you? Obviously, your family is going to play a huge role in that. So what you choose to believe, what you want to believe, is going to depend for a large measure on who you want to love you. Your social circle, that's going to make a difference. You see, the way the brain works is interesting. You choose, you get to choose what you want to believe, and your brain actually will make it true for you. Now, it doesn't mean it is true. It just means it will conveniently exclude all those things that don't agree with what you've chosen to believe, and it will draw in all the things that seem to support what you want to believe. That's why we have so many people believing so many things today. Who you love, who loves you, and what do you love? Well, that would be in brain terminology. Where do you get your dopamine? Dopamine is the chemical in the brain that motivates you to do the things that you want to do. In our society, typically, money, sex, power, chocolate, video games, all those things stimulate dopamine in your mind, but... If what you want, money, sex, and power, happen to disagree with what Jesus would say about how you should use your money, how you should use your sexuality, how you should use your power, he says things like generosity, integrity, honesty, purity. And then how about for power? How about humility? Not a lot of people would say, that's what I want to believe. I think I've got it better. I think the people I follow have it better. I don't have to go down that path. What you want to believe makes a big difference. Well, as we start looking at this passage, I want to look at some of the characters. We need to look at Jesus and we need to look at Jairus to fully understand the passage. And many of us have preconceived notions about Jesus. I think we miss the fact that he's, he's 30. I mean, people 30, 31, 32, that's about the time they come out of medical school, are out of residency, and they think they know a lot. And they're pretty irritating for those of us who are a little older. I don't want you to miss the offensiveness of this. 
Most of us think of Jesus as about 45 or 50. Now, we know he's in his 30s. He dies at 33. But in our minds, the pictures that we see, some of the stained glass we'll see, he looks 40s. No, 30, 31, 32. So you don't want to miss that jet black beard probably, jet black hair. Very youthful looking, and he's talking to a lot of people who are not so youthful looking. This is going to be a problem. I mean, in the passage we, we read, they're laughing at him. Now, what is the tension here? Why is, why is there a problem accepting him? Well, most of our politicians are not 30. When they, they get elected, they're usually about the time we would want Jesus to be, 45, 55, something in there. He's 30, 31, 32. And then we've got the bit about his education. Ooh, that rubs people the wrong way. He wasn't formally educated by any of the people who are disagreeing with him. In fact, he has no formal education. The Greek word says tekton when it describes what he does for a living. Tekton. We, King James translated carpenter, and certainly it can mean carpentry, but it's a builder. It's a construction worker. He works with wood but he also probably worked with stone. And this construction worker happens to be from Nazareth, not one of the most respected cities. So it would be like a construction worker from Las Vegas, 30 years old, pops up, calls his own disciples. He's healing people without a license. He's preaching without a formal ordination from any governing body. He has no legitimacy stamp from anyone. And a lot of people are following him. And that would make the people who have legitimacy, who went to medical training, who went to theology school, studied under a rabbi, that would make them sort of irritated. How come he's getting all of the attention? You don't want to miss the offensiveness We also have the fact that he happens to be very, very joyful. In John chapter 15, we read, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, that your joy may be full. Well, that doesn't make sense unless he's full of joy. Full of joy. He's 30. He's uneducated by formal certification processes. And he's full of joy. Well, Jesus is also very peaceful. So we also read in John, My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, I give to you. Well, if he doesn't have any peace, he doesn't have anything to give you. So this man had tremendous joy, tremendous peace, early 30s, and he's powerful. We get some idea of his personality with the episode in Luke chapter 2 where he's left behind at the temple. Three days later, his parents find him. I'm reading in Luke chapter 2, verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Okay, 
That would be expected. They've went a whole day's journey, can't find your son. Asking among the relatives, probably a little embarrassing. By the way, whose fault is it if your mother mother loses a son? It's usually people are going to blame the mother, right? So they have to travel all the way back. Probably she's worried about him. Does he have any money? Where is he sleeping? What's going on with... So by the time she gets there, she's actually, seems like she's venting a bit. Why have you treated us so? Then Jesus here, it's like he's from another planet. Because he says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And and I think when we read this kind of story, we just sort of like, ooh, he... It's like robotic. It doesn't make sense with the scenario. We've got a mother who's lost a child. What is he talking about? Most of us just flip the page. Well, let's just go on to a story I understand. Well, if you do that, you're not alone because it says, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Not even his parents are understanding this. But we know that there's nothing that Jesus says that the Father hasn't told him to say. There's nothing that he does that the Father's not doing. So as I look at these scriptures, I imagine there's a message here he's trying to communicate to his parents. So Jesus, we read in the Gospels, is not the only child of Mary and Joseph. He has four other brothers, and sisters, so at least two girls in the family. So he's one of seven, which would make this scenario also a little bit anxiety-producing. Mary's got other children. She's trying to corral them. She was expecting Jesus to know that they were leaving. And the way I put it together is that Jesus is saying, Mom, don't you know me? Every time we come to Jerusalem... On the holidays, there's only one place that I go. I'm always in the temple. That's all I ever talk about. That's all I ever want to talk about. That's all I ever do. I'm not playing stickball. I'm not at the mall. I go to the temple. Have you not noticed, Mom? In the busyness of life, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten some of the events that happened? Did you not know I would be in my father's house? Have you forgotten that Joseph is not my father. There was a virgin birth. Remember, Mom? Oh, no, no, Mary would never forget the virgin birth. She would never forget. Look in Scripture. Look at the people who experienced Jesus' miracles. Peter, he walked on water. He saw, and as soon as stress and fear comes, all your faith goes out the window. He would deny Jesus. He would do all kinds of things. Just because you've had a supernatural experience does not mean that your faith for the rest of your life will remain at that level. Fear has the power to take that away. Perfect love casts out fear, and fear does a pretty good job of removing that perfect love. I wonder if you've gotten so busy, Mom or Dad, that you have also left Jesus behind and it's making you anxious. Might be taking out some of that anxiety or anger or stress on some of the people in your family. But Jesus is saying, remember who I am.
Another picture we get of Jesus in John chapter 18. This is at the end of his life. He has been arrested. They have finally caught up with him. They've got him in chains, and he's before the high priest. He has been a renegade, sort of a hunted man, running from them, escaping them. He preaches, but they try to arrest him. They never get him. Now they've gotten they've gotten him. Let's read. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. In other words, high priest, I guess you didn't come where all the Jews come. You haven't heard me speak. You see, in that culture, you had to respect your elders, respecting authority figures. And the respect was so absolutely critical. And Jesus, since he has no fear and he tells the truth, everyone takes that as a lack of respect. My father grew up in a Jewish culture in the Mediterranean area. And respect for his parents was absolutely paramount. Even when his father was elderly, he absolutely couldn't question him. Uh, He couldn't really even discuss anything with him. He just had to take the word and obey. Well, Jesus breaks with that tradition. And that is irritating to people, especially the people who are in authority. And Jesus said to the high priest, Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? That was the culture. You do not question authority. And Jesus, well, he seems to question authority, especially when their hearts are not really right. Jesus answered him, If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Wow, he's just speaking truth unintimidated when he knows that they're going to kill him. This is amazing faith, and it's amazing beauty. And I want you to see the beauty of Jesus here. So he's going to interact with Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue ruler. He's a wealthy man. He lives in town. Oh, he lives in the same town as Jesus. He lives in Capernaum. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. Now he lives in Capernaum with Jairus. Jairus is the ruler of that synagogue. Interesting, another man you should know lives in Capernaum. He is called a centurion. And in Luke chapter 4, we learn that the centurion's servant was sick. And since the centurion built the synagogue in Capernaum, of whom Jairus is the ruler, are you getting the connection here? The synagogue, uh, the centurion calls the elders of the Jews to go and ask Jesus if he can come heal the servant of the centurion. Jairus may have even been among those who went to Jesus. If not, he certainly heard about it because the centurion had said, you don't even need to come under my roof. You actually can just say the word. Jesus says the word. The centurion's servant is healed. Oh, do you think that spread throughout Capernaum? Would everyone have heard about that? Had Jairus heard about that? Oh, of course he'd heard about that. 
In fact, we read in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus already spoke in the synagogue at Capernaum of whom Jairus is the ruler. Is it going to make any difference in their interaction if they actually know each other? Well, relationships make a difference. So Jesus arrives on the beach. Jairus is there. He falls before him to his knees, and he asks him to come and heal his daughter, only daughter who is dying. Well, Jesus agrees to go with him, which is interesting because it appears that they might have been at odds. One of the questions I would think that Jesus might have asked Jairus there at the beach is, Jairus, was your daughter sick yesterday? Because it appears that he was in town yesterday. Was your daughter sick yesterday? It appears that within 30 minutes of Jesus arriving there on the beach, the daughter actually is dead. Jairus, you sort of waited till the last minute. Did she, was she, did she just get sick this morning? Is there a reason you haven't come to me before? Is it common for 12-year-olds to get sick in the morning and to die by 5 in the afternoon? It's extraordinarily rare, possible, but very likely she had been sick before. Day before, week before, I don't know. But is it interesting now that Jairus has to drop to his knees to ask Jesus to come, as if there's something he has to beg him to come? Well, maybe people have been coming to Jesus all week and say, hey, you know, the synagogue, Jairus' daughter's sick. Have they asked you yet to heal her? You know, everyone knows she's sick. I mean, it's a, it's a, this kind of word travels. Had, the new doctor from Jerusalem just arrived to see if he can help. Have they asked you yet, Jesus? How, how did that feel? The other thing Jesus could say to Jairus is, um, Jairus, you know, the centurion asked me to heal from a distance. I see you want me to come to your house. Where, where is your faith? Everyone knows I can heal from a distance. You were in on that. What? It's interesting that Jesus meets him where he is and goes with him. How do you do when there's an adversarial relationship and suddenly you have the upper hand? How does that go for you? A lot of posturing, a lot of walking around, a little strutting. Now you need me. Now you need me. Uh huh. Now I've got you where I want you. Or how do we do in our families? Oh, I told you so. I told you you'd be coming back to me. We get none of that from Jesus. We see something absolutely beautiful about his character. He doesn't need to boost his ego at anyone else's expense. And I think there's a reason that he doesn't tell Jairus he's going to heal at a distance. It's because Jairus doesn't have just one problem. He actually has two. He has the problem of his daughter, but he also has the problem of his social circle. Neither of them can he heal on his own. He's going to need Jesus to help him with both of those problems. And so he goes, and we read on the way that the daughter has actually died. And this messenger, who we might think is really trying to be helpful, telling 
telling Jairus, don't bother the teacher anymore. Oh, wait a minute. We read in Luke chapter 7, an important thing happened not far away. It happened in Nain where there was a woman, a widow, who had a son, and her only son had died, and Jesus happened to come into town and raise the boy from the dead. And it says, and word of him spread throughout Judea and the entire region. Do you think they heard about raising someone from the dead in Nain? It'd be very unusual if that word didn't travel 10, 20 miles to Capernaum. But this messenger has the nerve to come and say, Jairus, would you come back? No need to bother the teacher anymore. No need to bother the teacher anymore. You see, he's sent to separate. They know that Jairus has finally broken down to go to get Jesus because this, his social circle does not want Jesus around. They don't want him to heal. They don't want him to be famous. They don't want him to do anything. And he's saying, Jairus, we want you to come back because the girl's dead, but not with him. Jesus says, just believe. And they go together and they walk into the house. And there is weeping and there is mourning and wailing. And Jesus says, again, something that most of us, we would say, I do not understand. Because he says, why are you weeping? The girl is not dead. She's sleeping. And I pondered that because he doesn't waste any words. Everything he says has meaning. But why would he say something like that at a time like this? Because it gets laughter. If he's truly humble, why doesn't he just go in, not say anything, raise the girl, slip out? That would be, I would think, the humblest thing to do. Or if you were maybe like I would do if I was the Messiah... I would say something like this. If, look, I'm the Messiah, uh, and I'm here. I'm here to help out. So good to see you. Uh, I'm so sorry you've been having a rough day today, but I'm here to help. I just want to make sure I don't offend anybody here. The, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to try to help, but especially you doctors in the audience, I know you've tried so hard. I don't want to offend any of you. This is a really tough case. Hope I get a chance to shake each one of your hand because the Messiah is it's actually an office. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And so I, I'm really hoping that I can get all of your votes. Now, let's turn to the girl. Have we been able to verify that she is, in fact, dead? Can we, have the, let's get one of the doctors to come verify, in fact, that she's dead. She's cold, she's blue, she's not breathing. Yes, doctor, thank you. She is dead. I th- okay. I'd like to see a show of hands now. How many believe, or how many don't believe, that I can raise her from the dead? Oh, all the hands are up, and there's some laughter I see. Well, well, obviously very opinionated. I can use some of those opinions in my kingdom. So what I'll do now, some of the people with your hands up, uh, the Pharisee, the scribe, the doctor, yes, come in, some of the synagogue rulers, let's get around the bed while I do this. If you are a self-promoter, right? You find the doubt, you confront it, and now you've got some fans. 
well, this is, this is really, really strange what Jesus is saying here. She's not dead. She's sleeping. If he wants fans, it's not a way to get yourself fans. Why, why, why does he say this? I believe there are a few reasons. Number one, they had heard about him raising the boy in Nain. And when they sent the messenger, surely somebody would have said, well, listen, he's raised the boy in in Nain. Maybe he could do that here. And probably they would have said, oh, that was Nain. It's just a little town. There are no doctors there. There was a poor widow. The boy wasn't dead. He was probably just sleeping. And so Jesus walks in and he said, why are you weeping? She's not dead. She's sleeping. Possibility. And there's, there's another possibility. When they laugh, let me ask you this question. How easy is it to change from true mourning to laughter? How easy is it from going to absolute sorrow and grief that this 12-year-old has died to laughter? It's actually not very easy. I mean, you might say, huh? You might get angry. You might do... But, but laughter? I believe what Jesus is saying to Jairus. He's saying, Jairus, these people in your home, your social circle, your friends, they're not really mourning. They're not actually really your friends. They would rather your daughter stay dead than for me to heal her. Make a note. Make a note. These are are your friends, Jairus, your synagogue ruler. You see, wealthy people, wealthy people have a problem, and the problem is their social circle. Because your social circle typically controls what you believe or what you need to believe, what you think you should believe, what everyone says is politically correct. And Jesus was not politically correct then, and he's not politically correct today. Interesting how little has changed in all of the years that have passed. They hated him then, they hate him today. Jairus, these these people are interested in just furthering the control they have over you and their economic situation. They're not actually interested in your grief or what you love. Make a note. The last thing that I think Jesus may be doing, and this is fascinating to me, is if he says she's not dead, but she's sleeping. When she is raised from the dead, they can say, oh, she was sleeping. Jesus is giving the people who don't want to believe a way out. That is crazy to me. I thought he was sort of like I was being a minute ago, this messianic vote gatherer. No. If you don't want to believe, Jesus actually will will help you find reasons. Look, if you want to believe that you just arrived here from pure evolution, that matter came together, organized itself, and here we all are, 
you will find scientists to help you believe that. Well, you're welcome to believe that. So Jesus is having grace with Jairus, saying, Jairus, I will help you with your faith. He's having actually grace with the audience, saying, you don't have to believe us if you don't want to. He's not saying, as soon as I raise her, I'm hoping this will go viral and get the words going to get out so that I can start being a little more popular. And by the way, Jairus, uh, if you, your wife, and your daughter, you know, I'm going to be on trial in Jerusalem coming up. I'd love you to support me there. What does he say to Jairus? Jairus, don't tell anybody. What? What? That's why I'm here to try to help you see this character of Jesus is so unusual. It's so, he's not self-promoting. He's not using guilt. He's not using shame. I mean, if you just raise someone's daughter from the dead, you could actually call in a favor. He is the synagogue ruler. No pressure. How do you do with your use of guilt, shame, manipulation, when people owe you something? How are you putting pressure on, you know, I did this favor for you? Most of us respond the same way the world does, with control. You know, I don't want you to misunderstand me, the fact that Jesus doesn't try to control Jairus, and he doesn't try to control his potential fan club or his, the people who he's at resistance with. He's not trying to win them over. He's sort of letting them off or giving them an excuse. Don't misunderstand that he doesn't care or that it doesn't matter if they believe or not. There is nothing that actually matters more. In fact, at the end of his ministry, after he's done all these miracles in Capernaum where he lives, including these that we've talked about today with the centurion, the woman with the hemorrhage, and Jairus' daughter, as well as others, Capernaum still is against him, his hometown. And he pronounces this judgment. It is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You see, they still thought that they were going to be God's favorite, the best. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the day of, in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Wow. Oh, it matters. It matters. But he's looking for a few things. He's looking not just for fans. He's looking for people whose hearts resonate with his goodness. He's so incredibly good. And he's so beautiful. And people who say, you know, that's what I want. Even though he says things I don't understand that may even be offensive to me, eat my flesh and drink my blood. I mean, he says a lot of things that just don't go over real well. There's something so beautiful about him. I've got to keep pursuing him. And he, those are the kinds of people that he wants. And he has the presence. I notice that Jesus has the presence and the poise to go with Jairus 
even though it potentially is not necessary, he might be able to heal Jairus' daughter from a distance. Even though he's going into a hostile territory, he agrees to go with him. Could you? Would you do something like that for someone who had heard you speak and had just been filled with animosity or had an adversarial relationship? I want you to remember also that Jesus is offensive. I know that's hard to swallow, but he's a stumbling block, a rock of offense. And as we gather that he actually is 30, 31, 32, uneducated, confronting all of the gray-haired, gray-bearded people, let me ask you something. Is there someone in your life who's hard for you to hear truth from because they are so young, because they are so youthful, because they just came out of their training. I can remember a man I was mentoring, young man, was trying to hurt me and said something like, you know, you're not very joyful. Ooh, I was offended by that, especially when he was so young following the Lord, and I had been doing it for so long. Is it possible someone who had been following God for many years lacks joy? Oh, but it was true. That was the problem with it. It came from someone's mouth who was really hard to hear it from. Can you hear truth from someone younger, maybe who doesn't have a degree, maybe who's even a little offensive when they say it, but it rings true to you? Can you take that to the Lord Not that we should just respond to everyone's critiques. Take it to the Lord. Lord, is it true? Am I lacking in joy? Yes, it was true. And I got an opportunity to repent and to start doing things, using thanksgiving, using gratitude to increase my joy instead of always looking for what's happening next. You know, Jesus, in this story, puts the people out that don't believe. He says he clears the room. He only lets Peter, James, John, Mom, and Dad in the room with the girl. Why? I think it's because negativity, unbelief, has a powerful effect at holding back the power of God. And I want you to think about, in your social circles, Are there some boundaries that you need to set, some negativity that's inhibiting the power of God working through you and through your life and through your family? Your social circle does affect your health, your spiritual health, which we know affects your physical health, as well as the health of your family. You know, in our world today, it's hard to actually get silence to actually be alone with our thoughts. We get in our cars and on comes the the music and at home, looking at our phones, as soon as we stand up, they come out. Wow. All that is harming your ability to hear from God. So I bless you. I bless the ability not to use guilt, manipulation, or obligation to control those around you. You don't need to. You can trust your Father. I bless you to be able to hear 
hard words from people that you don't like and that are hard to hear them from. If God is speaking, you will hear his voice through Balaam's donkey or through anyone. That you will have the humble heart to hear hard words no matter what source they come from. I bless you to be honest about how those around you are affecting you and your relationship to God and your walk. And I bless you to be able to follow truth wherever it leads and whatever it costs you and whoever doesn't agree with you, especially in your social circle. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Lift up his countenance on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Thank you.